Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blay Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I am the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week we're kicking off the first installment of our new segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us, for better or worse. And for October, uh, Neil, I gotta say, horror fans have certainly been feasting, uh, wouldn't you say? Oh man, yeah, to the point we are fit to burst and <laughs> don't have any time for anything else, really, which is uh, uh, kind of odd, you know, to when we came up with the concept for this and just say to have a review show, we picked the month where we had the most stuff, but you're thinking, oh, well, no, it'll be a bumper episode and all that stuff, but then we couldn't get to everything yeah. as well. So, you know, we don't get to the Resident Evil Village DLC, we didn't get to Stay Out of the House or Edorf's uh, Faith Chapter 3. Um, but, you know, we may come down to them. But I suppose the thing we should point out straight away with this is that these are short-form opinions on these games. They aren't in place of ever doing an episode on any of these games. We can still do those long-form discussions that we normally do if we really love a game and want to come back to it. And in the case of some some of these games, that is probably going to happen. Um, so, yeah, these 10 to 15 minutes review, breezy, light, no scoring, nothing like that. We're just talking it through. We'll pick a game of the month and Bob's your uncle. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm very excited to chat about some of these that, you know, are brand new IPs. Some of them are sequels and some of them are games that, you know, we've played previously this year. So, yeah, I think we have a, a good assortment to kick off the inventory with. And, uh, you know, as this is a game that we covered early in, you know, Safe Room's history, I think the only place to start is a Plague Tale Requiem, right? I mean, mm. this is serving as, you know, the follow-up to 2019's A Plague Tale Innocence from developer Asobo Studio and publisher Focus Entertainment that is going to continue Amicia, Hugo, Beatrice, and Lucas's tale. And I believe it picks up six months after the events of the first game. Uh, and, you know, you would hope that after those events our cast of heroes would uh, have a moment to kind of catch their breath after that sort of turbulent uh, journey that they <laughs> went on. But, you know, in typical sequel fashion, that's not exactly the case, right? Because our heroes find that once again, they're in the crosshairs of the Inquisition and uh, those pesky rat tornadoes from the original game, uh, which definitely kind of complicates their journey to finding a cure to uh, Hugo's disease. And, you know, I got to play a little bit of this during Tribeca, you, of course, got to review the game. Uh, and I'm, so I'm curious, you know, how does this land for you for a sequel to uh, a game that both of us held in pretty high regards as a uh, a blending of stealth action and, of course, horror? Well, wow, this was something else. You know, I was always uh, in the belief of the fact that Asobo could do more with what they had, you know, that they made compromises with the original game to sort of complement to make it look better and bigger. And one of the few, you know, if you're going to go double A and say if, what they're doing, developers who look at what something, you know, a company like Sony do with their first party like games and gets the gist of why those games end up being successful. And it's not because they're complex, complex, complicated games. It's that they're visual master, master strokes with these big cinematic moments and this, you know, really heavy narrative. You know, and you get those beats right and look good and you've got a good shot. Now, the consequence of a smaller studio doing that 
even one as talented as Asobo, you know, who did you know the Microsoft Flight Sim stuff. So they, you know they they've covered larger expanses than this. But here it is really really difficult to sort of keep that sort of visual fidelity up um, to you know step right in line with companies that have you know thousands more people working on their games and bigger budgets and things like that. So yeah, you notice little details that aren't quite the same. But you have to go into it knowing that. You have to go into it thinking, well, this isn't the same as a big company making this game. This is the next step. And it really is such an impressive feat in that regard. You know, Not just from the technical showcase nature of it, which really, it is so, so impressive, so beautiful in places and varied when it really gets going. And but also from a gameplay side, where it really does just sort of expand upon all we had in Innocence, and suddenly you have this big, wide open area of uh, expertise to draw upon, and you get new abilities and tools that you can use uh, as you go along, and it builds almost exactly like those you know big first party Sony games uh, in terms of style and story. It's just draws you in so much but i just think it's such a beautifully melancholy story anyway and then goes from that to just pure bleak you know despair a lot of the time and it is this constant struggle of you know wanting to have a happy life and to be away from everything they've suffered but never having the chance to get away from it because that their curse is following them effectively wherever they go and you see this in the opening moments of the game where they really just sort of push this sort of look at them having you know, kids at play, you know, and really getting to do something happy. And it's almost jarring in a way because you're like, Oh, did I miss something here? This doesn't feel right in a way. And, you know, it is just the lead for what we are to see, which is this big, you know, setup for how things are going to go south very quickly. Now, beyond that, it really does just go on this epic journey. I mean, there's no way, two ways about it. This is twice the length of the original game. And in the same way that when, if you remember it, when you first played The Last of Us and it felt long for that kind of game, you know, it felt like something more because it was like probably about six, seven hours longer than most games of that type at that time. It felt like an epic. Yeah. And yet games have jumped further, further beyond that now, where this is like half the size of that. But because of that expectation from the first game, it feels like it's this big epic finale. Um, I remarked to you, I remarked in my review, that you know it feels like part two and part three put together. Like they said, well, we don't know if we'll get to finish this story in particular, so we'll do it all in one. And they did. They really have just said, don't worry about a three in this story. We'll, we'll tell this story and then see what we get out of it. Shoot, shot, done. And, and for that, I think it is magnificent. Now, you came to it, obviously, after reviews, after everything else, and with a little more expectation uh, added on. But uh, So how did you sort of find it when you got to that point? I think first and foremost, I was just thrilled that the game opens up in a way that doesn't feel like it's going out of its way to kind of outdo the original game, its predecessor, mm. right? I think that sometimes when you're a developer is doing a sequel, especially obviously when it's the same developer continuing that story, there might be 
the inclination that, well, since it's a sequel, you know, it's got to abide by that bigger and better mentality, which is not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes some developers can get carried away with that and almost front load a plethora of new features that almost kind of rewrite what the original experience was in a way. Um, mm. And I think for this game, it does a really great job and you alluded to it, right? It kind of captures these characters that have become beloved since that original game. And we kind of get this nice idyllic sort of moment that acts as the tutorial. And then it continues in a manner that feels familiar. But as you said, the world is so much larger and not only larger, but more gorgeous, right? I think that so many of these moments and set pieces in this game, they kind of feel like these Gothic paintings almost where you kind of just sit, stand there and just watch and just kind of, observe this fantastical landscape of, you know, medieval horrors, if you will. And, you know, seeing the world not only expand, but give the player, I suppose, more routes, even if maybe, you know, the tools at their disposal are relatively similar. At the same time, though, you know, the feeling or maybe if you want to call it the illusion of choice in terms Mm -hmm. of how you're going to tackle an environment is something that you know, I appreciate and I find that I would rather have that route than perhaps they kind of begin to rewrite the ways in which you played the original game. And that's not to say, you know, they're not going to introduce elements to gameplay that are going to be different, right? And this one, more importantly, or more notably, it's the counter mechanic. If you get caught by a guard, you can kind of briefly stun them with your sling, or if you found a knife, you can right out kill them, right? And that plays into this morality uh, system that's included in this version where, you know, mm. whoever um, Amicia is with, they will comment on the fact, oh, we should try not to kill people or, oh, man, we're killing a lot of these guards or this and that. And, you know, that's another facet that I think plays well with the storytelling of these kids that are growing up much faster than children should as a result of the world that they're in. Um, and I just uh, am appreciative of the fact that, you know, even if maybe it doesn't necessarily change up gameplay all that much from that standpoint of like the morality system. It's still something that's I find is recognizing player action in a way that I can mm-hmm. appreciate. And it plays into the story again, seeing these children be shaped by this hostile world um, that, you know, they're constantly being hunted and whatnot and seeing how that changes them or at least pertains to uh, their relationships with one another. But yeah, um, I was really, really pleasantly surprised by this. And uh, yeah, I think that, they are continuing this in a way that makes it feel like an epic that doesn't necessarily just feel like it's a retreading on the first mm. game's arc, if you will. Um, I think that from what I've played, it's got a good amount of, you know, seeing these characters change in some fundamental ways. Not only that, but also just the world itself. Um, I find I'm more engaged with and I even went back and replayed a couple of areas so that way I could kind of play around with different uh, stealth routes and whatnot, even if, yeah. you know. There's going to be a limited amount of solutions to a majority of those areas. But at the same time, I'm appreciative of the fact that, you know, you can approach things or even not only just the player's own way, but at the same time, you know, just because you get caught right away, it doesn't mean that that interaction is over. Right? Yeah. I can always, you know, kind of stun a guy, run away, hide under a table and then go another route and utilize other parts of the environment uh, to, you know, hopefully successfully sneaking through that area. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so obviously we've got to mention, being a horror show, we have to sort of mention the horror elements of this somewhat. And there are plenty. I mean, apart from the fact that you, know, you have the usual you know, body stacked high, the, you know, the grim, gruesome sights of the streets where 
everything has been affected. The rats are now just so, oh you know, in, <laughs> yeah, they feel infinite. There are, there are scenes later in the game where it is insane how many rats there are. And, you know, there, there are these set beasts, not boss fights, but encounters where you basically having to you know, work your way around to uh, take out a bigger enemy or a bigger threat that are very reminiscent of the, uh, one of them is very reminiscent of the David fight in The Last of Us. You know, where, you know, you are pretty much a young person up against an absolute maniac and in a, you know, a kitchen and trying to sort of sneak around and get your way around it. Um, I think what really ties it together for me, other than, you know, how the game that they've made is, um, Olivier Derillier's score. Sorry if I've said that name wrong, Olivier, but, um, it's, you know, he has fast become one of my favorite composers in, in games. Um, you know, Dying Light 2's score this year was really good anyway, but this is just like, you know, one of those where I was like, the minute he said, oh, you know, he put it out for sale, I was like, yep, yeah, buying a copy of that. Cause you know, it's like twice as many songs as you can get on like streaming services and stuff. And it's just. Oh, it really does capture the dread, the joy, the wonder of everything. And I think it is going to be up there for me in terms of like my favorite soundtracks for the year. And, you know, generationally, you know, I was thinking, I think that it really is going to be something else. And yeah, grand stuff. Yeah. You know, I'll say, and just kind of in closing, like for me personally, a lot of fantasy scores tend to blend together. Uh, mm. after thing, especially, you know, <laughs> after watching a couple episodes of the new game of Thrones and like the Lord of the Rings shows, I almost kind of stopped paying attention to the score because for me, so much of it sounds so similar, but with a game like this, where the tone can change from moment to section to section and not to say like, it's erratic, but it's just, it so perfectly pairs with the direction of a scene or a chunk of the game, whether it's going to be, you know, one of these longer horror focus sections with the rats or if it's going to be something where it's, you know, Amicia and Hugo are kind of like trying to find an herb or something along those lines, the score does such a fantastic job of balancing both of those sort of levels of intensity, if you will. Um, but I think also, you know, you had mentioned kind of like the horrors of the rats, but then there's also just the horrors of the reality of just people, I think, in this game. And, you know, yes. there's an early on section, um, and I promise I'll be brief with this, uh, but... You know, there's a section where you essentially come across a soldier that is trapped by the rats and you actually help them to be able to escape to safety. And you kind of form this bond with this person where you're joking. It's a little jovial as soon as you're able to, you know, uh, uh, secure them a route to getting through the rats. And it's like, oh, well, you know, this person can't be all that bad. Right. And then as soon as it comes to the moment of meeting this person, it's business as usual for them. And it just shows the, you know, the rigid authoritarian regime of what is hunting, you know, Hugo and Amicia and their friends. And I think that that's a really disturbing aspect to this game that it just shows that, you know, there is this force that even if they're children, even if these children have gone out of their way to save somebody who would have died otherwise, at the moment's notice, they could just be killed because, you know, they don't bend to the will of the Inquisition or to the various soldiers and whatnot. So from that standpoint, I thought in addition to, of course, the horrors of the uh, supernatural rat tornadoes, uh, <laughs> that's an element that is equally frightening, but I think in a different way. Yeah. And just to finish off, I would say towards the end of that game, 
it goes into some really cosmic horror-esque places. Uh, the, you know, the, some of the scenery, some of the things that get shown are just jaw-dropping. You know, yeah, they are just so weird and out there. You know, there's stuff... I could name-check aliens and Bloodborne in, in those last moments, just in terms of aesthetic, rather than, you know, I'm not saying there's chest bursters or anything like that, but it's like, <laughs> chest bursting rats. <laughs> I mean, that would be something, right? that would be something. <laughs> but still, um, but yeah, no, it really does just confidently go down the route it wants to. And it just feels like this proper descent into some sort of hell, personal hell. Yeah. I love that about it. It's just, it's a game that's not afraid to be bleak and keep giving you that little spark of hope and taking it away from you as soon as they can. And it's like, while that could be miserable, but if you're looking for something a bit more uplifting, I think it's doing a good job at it. Of all the sequels, I was happy to not see be blundered. It was certainly this one. And I definitely, yes. uh, I definitely think that they nailed the mark with that. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think that uh, A Plague Tale is a perfect place for us to start this month. And I would love to transition into what was a little lesser known of a title, but at the same time, I think just as noteworthy, which is Withering Rooms, which was developed and published by Moonless Formless. And this is out in early access, and this is a 2.5D horror adventure game where a uh, young girl named Nightingale is committed to a Victorian asylum that operates outside her and the player's understanding of reality. Uh, Because at night, she enters a dream world that's filled with witches and hellish monsters that roam the halls. Uh, Monsters that stand in the way of our understanding, the truth of the asylum, and even of Nightingale herself. Uh, This was a game that I had seen for a while now, kind of just following the development cycle of it. And I was really intrigued by the blending of not only, you know, the two and a half D sort of uh, graphical style or gameplay style of it, but also it's blending of Victorian horror with survival horror um, in a way that looked really, really intriguing. Um, And finally getting to really dive into it. um, I found this to be a really welcomed uh, surprise and it just dropping, you know, in early access it was fantastic to finally get my hands on it. But, uh, Neil, how did this one land? Yeah. So just to get out the gate as well, uh, thank you very much to Moonless Formers for the code for this as well, because they specifically provided it to us for this as well. So that, that's great. Um, yeah. Strangely enough, not the only game with a sort of procedural sort of place, you know, this month that we, we've got. And maybe that sort of colored my view of it a bit because of the other game that does it. But, you know, I think to begin with, I think it's a really interesting idea anyway, that you take a building that doesn't quite work the same way every time, that that you can, you know, do your permanent aspects to it where you can unlock an area and go with it and a shortcut or whatever and secret passages, secret passages and stuff and try to find some sort of, you know, grip on the place and where it's going whilst also having this constant sense of mystery that 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 sort of procedural stuff gives it's really cool and i I really like that idea and it could be better maybe i suppose i think there's aspects of the story that didn't really grab me but you know i think a lot of the mechanical stuff that it's doing sort of pushes you through it because you are constantly, you aren't left in a place where you really feel safe and uh, left to your own devices. You are never mastering things, so to speak. You are you know, on the back foot, and that works for me a lot. Yeah, you know? and I suppose 
that I could have been a bit softer on it then. Um, but like I said, I played another game that has a similar sort of idea this month and executes it, I think, more consistently. So this kind of suffers by comparison, which is you know, not fair in a lot of ways. I mean, this is this is this studio's first game, so and it's still early access, so it can change and get better. Whereas the, the other game is released out there in the wild. Um, but I like stuff like the spells. You know, the spells, the fact that you can use those to sort of do stuff like um, create a decoy or just, you know, make stuff like armor. And it really sort of adds to the story in its own way, in your own personal storytelling, you know, rather than, you know, the major story thing where you sort of decide your strategy for this route and how you're going to go through it. Um, all the things that most sort of roguelike style things work well with when they're done in a decent manner and you know it is done in a very decent manner um i like the sort of clock tower vibe it has as well which i think is a an influence point that they have uh referenced and i suppose that was the most endearing thing really is that aesthetically it was very pleasing you know i, I really did like the way it looked i like the mechanics that were underlying i yeah i just wasn't really grabbing the story as much that was that was my main thing yeah for me i think the gameplay largely overshadows the story which you know i'm personal it's a personal thing i'm not like crazy about stories with witches and things like that what i am a fan of is how the gameplay mechanics end up blending in and you know working with this story in this dreamlike Mm. sense of the world um you know i think that makes a perfect story and setting for this procedurally generated roguelite approach But more importantly, there's a facet of gameplay here that's called like curses, right? So Mm. you have items or if you get hit by enemies that increase your curse meter. And the more cursed that your character becomes, the more the world opens up in supernatural ways, which I found to be super fascinating, not only from the sense of, you know, the way the environment changes, which can result in some paranormal things, but also the ways in which you can traverse the world. Because the world itself, again, is this side scroller. That is Mm. mainly like one long hall, and then there's rooms that are off of that. And, you know, one thing about that is that with some survival horror games, people are like, well, you know, if I come across an enemy, I can just duck into this room or something like that. But in this, what I like is that the enemies actually follow you into each room, which never really allows the player to have this sense of safety other than if they choose to like hide under a piece of furniture or hide in um, like a cupboard if they don't want to, you know, engage in combat with enemies, which can be quite costly to the player because the more damage you take, of course, you'll end up dying. But the fact is, is that you're going to lose a majority of your items with every death. Um, But the game, you know, furthermore, has a focus called, um, I believe it's like shrines in which if you kill two enemies or if you kill a specific enemy and sacrifice a body part you gain from that, then you can basically take an item that you found on a current run and then carry it over to another run. You basically remember it for the next life, um, which I like because it's kind of like with Hades in the sense that even if you are dying in a run, if you're playing smart or playing correctly, you're going to have something that will make you maybe more uh, just stronger for the next run. You're improving your inventory or in Hades, you know, you're improving your character's abilities and things like that. Um, So from that standpoint, I'm a fan of the fact that, you know, even in death, the player is either learning something about the world or they're strengthening, you know, that next run coming up. 
Um, I'm also yes. a fan of like some of the lore building, some of the writing. It's this nice blend of you know horror with some really dark, uh, morose humor, kind of like with the enemies where at one point you find an enemy that's called like a beast zombie. And then in, you know, in parentheses, it says like Chloria patient, which ties into not only, you know, the history of the asylum that you're in, but also there is this sense of like, okay, it's not just monsters you're fighting. These were people once and just, it's a subtle thing. It's not, you know, a massive, uh, part of the narrative, but it's a little bit of, I suppose, you know, morose flavor, to withering rooms that uh, I was appreciative of. Yeah. And, you know, as asylum stories go, you know, it's one of those things that comes up quite frequently. And I think uh, it's a game we don't cover this month that I have played that uh, called Charon's Charon's, uh, Staircase, which, you know, is more of a sort of puzzle first person adventure style version of this where you, you do go to this island where it's an asylum and it's got all these secrets and things like that. And, yeah, it's like the opposite thing where mechanically it's up and down about what it does, but the story is more engaging. But I think I like the overall vibe of this better because it's just not just because of the clock tower vibes, but it felt more in tune with an old school feel. You know, it really, yeah, you know, it was that sort of, again, there are games again this month, but we will talk about this where you know, there is a real, sense of understanding what made games that these people are, are evoking you know so beloved you know and why people still fawn about them to this day and yeah on a level this really does get it you know and i'm always going to commend that because there are so many out there that will very lazily get the rough idea of oh well if we make it like this we give it tank controls or if we do survival horror aspects Fine, yeah, but then you kind of have to do the next bit, which is make it work and feel like it did whilst modernizing it, you know. And I think as it stands, this is doing a pretty good job in sort of, you know, modernizing old, old school ideas. And the best thing going for it is it's early access and it can just evolve, get bigger, get better. And the feedback they'll get from it will make it that way and i think that's that's the key thing to remember here is that it's in early access and while i have my criticisms of it as it is these are things that can be you know attuned fixed whatever so yeah i think for what as it is coming out in early access really finely done yeah it's definitely a a stronger foundation i'll say than uh, some of maybe the other early access titles uh, that I've played. But yeah, you know, it is the type of thing that I think makes a good first impression. And if anything, uh, it can only go up from there in terms of the feedback that it, they take and uh, seeing how the game shifts and, you know, what, mm. if there's any other permutations of it uh, down the line. Yeah, I mean, and let's uh, be honest here. It, it's come up against a lot of games this month that are exceptional for the genre. Uh, that has to be said. You know, we are very much blessed with a very good month, you know, while we're cheating with one that didn't quite come out last <laughs> month. But still, um, it's, it's a good haul. And, you know, it, it's for a small game made by a, a you know, first time developer, you know, you're punching with the big boys. So be proud there. Yeah. And, you know, that's a perfect segue into our next title, uh, Proteus from Bounding Box mm. Software and published from uh, Humble Bundle Games. And, you know, 
technically, you know, released in the dog days of September, but <laughs> I found that uh, this game was too good not to cover. Uh, and, you know, this is one that could be simply or maybe overly simplified in the sense of, oh, it's another boomer shooter that utilizes throwback graphics and sensibilities of game design to old school 90s FPSs, but I think we would both agree that would be doing it a, a massive nerve-fraying uh, disservice just based off of not only the fact <laughs> that while it does utilize you know this old school pixelated throwback to sort of classical Doom look, it very much plays like modern Doom, I find, in that it does have that intensity and that urgency that you mm. find in something like Doom Eternal. And it also happens to have probably one of my favorite scores uh, and probably this year from uh, Andrew Holschult. Um, it's uh, yes. this really just kind of like meat grinder score that allows every single firefight to capture the intensity, I find, or the satisfaction of the very first firefight, which again, when you talk about boomer shooters or games that really are trying to channel the classical feel, if you will, of a genre, something like this is able to do that, but it's able to really propel it with a sense of urgency or in fact, you know, really building on that classical experience in a way that uh, maybe more modern gamers can appreciate in terms of, you know, when they compare it to maybe more modern shooters that they've been playing. Uh, You actually reviewed this one, I believe. Yeah, I did it. um, Dread XP. And did I, I I really just was glad to have my words out there on this because it was a nice surprise. You know, it wasn't on my radar, I must admit, until I, the review opportunity came up. And, you know, I, I said in my review that it is basically the most literal version of what you could call a Doom clone because it has something from what Doom was and what modern Doom added, which was turning into Quake. And that's the sweet spot. I don't really like where Doom went, you know, as a series. You know, I, I'm not really keen on Doom Eternal and where that went. But this, yeah, I think early in my review, I put this line basically about um, the fact that it, it dredges a variety of mood styles and vibes from a lot of the games I loved growing up in first person, you know, like Duke Nukem 3D, The Quakes, Half-Life, Unreal Tournament, you know, Bulletstorm, Titanfall 2, and even Dusk, which Holstead scored as well. And, yeah, I said effectively it cuckoos its way into the first person shooter family. And what a fucking spectacular cuckoo it is, is what I said, you know, because it is. It really does just do things so easily that it feels like it's cheating. And it felt like I was being condescending uh, uh, in my early praise for it because it just felt like I was saying, you know, oh, look, well done. Here's a Doom clone that knows how to be you know, a boomer shooter style game that can do what it's supposed to do. But as I was just saying with the Withering Rooms, it, how hard is it to really nail the feel of what was and add to what is now and combine that and really make that work? Because sometimes you take too far from one or the other and you're either too frustrated or feel a bit hollow because you're not really getting that vibe. You're just sort of going for aesthetic if you're going too far one way or the other. But no, this, especially when you um, go with the old school character morals, feels like the most modern Duke Nukem sequel ever, you know, because it's just that sort of, like, it's 3D, but it's also got those 2D 
sort of sprites and things like that. And I love that sort of balance. You know, there's a few games that have done that within this sort of boomer shooter style uh, revival. But here, it, it really does just feel like the best of both worlds in so many ways. And the particle effects and things like that, that go on in this game, oh, it's just, you know, as you said with that soundtrack, it, it just, it is a spectacular thing to look at, you know, and to play. Headphones on, smashing the crap out of things, and the gore in this game is just ridiculous. You know, it is just, you know, it splatters on the ceiling, it splatters on the floor, it splatters on your gun, it splatters everywhere, and it's like, oh, you just feel like you're actually wading into things and just destroying them because you are just getting caked in it. And that's just so satisfying. I mean, (laughs) you don't even, it's not even like you're knee deep in hell. You're quite literally like eyeball deep in hell. It feels like at times because you're just, you know, chewing through hordes of enemies with like that minigun. And literally it gets to the point where you can't see anything because there's just so much blood kicking up everywhere. And Mm. I think that something that I'm appreciative of is, it has a variety of weapons, which I'm really a fan of, you know, sometimes with maybe some of the throwback boomer shooters, if you will, you know, they hit those main staples, obviously, but then you only have maybe one or two options per sort of weapon category. But with this, you know, you've got three options per category, whether it's, you know, uh, machine guns, whether it's plasma, whether it's, you know, rockets or something like that. And I'm appreciative of the fact that, you know, there's a quality variety there that allows players to really you know lean into their style if you maybe if you're not as an aggressive uh, as player as some <laughs> of us uh you don't want to use the minigun you would rather hang back and use you know that pistol which has a burst fire alt fire yeah. and you know throwbacks to firearms that have the alt fire mode and things i'm always uh, a champion of and kind of long for in a lot of the more modern first person shooters but yeah the way in which they're able to nail that gameplay loop of like those 60 second encounters, you walk into a room and all these enemies spawn like that never tires because of not only the variety of enemies, but the fact of the environments themselves, I find almost kind of like with the soundtrack, it paces really, really well in building and building and environments in the same way do that because you have those, you know, concrete corridor shooter sections or, you know, in interior uh, facilities, but then you also get these sprawling hell landscapes that have a real sense of verticality to them that mm. I'm appreciative of. And I just find that it captures and nails the destructive uh, you know, nature of classic Quake, if you will. But it's doing it on such a grander scale that it's one of those games that it's like, okay, maybe I'll play two or three levels and I end up playing like six or seven because it just it hits that intensity so well. The soundtrack starts ripping, as yeah. you said, um, and at the same time, you know, the unlocks that they have, which, you know, you they're collectibles that kind of act as a currency and you can actually, they have a reason to return to certain environments because you can begin to access things that you couldn't on your first run, which, you know, as fun as the gameplay is, it's nice to have a reason to return to those environments or sections of the game other than, oh, I just want to replay this level. You actually can furthermore be rewarded uh, and unlocking new weapons or new abilities, which gives it a level of replay that goes past just, oh, you know, it's fun to play, uh, which is a nice kind of added bonus I found. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I've noticed as well that really does appeal when these games do things right is just it's the level of clarity to what you're doing that, it, you know, I'm coming, talking about this now at the same time I'm sort of playing through Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 to 
and how it looks really spectacular and like everything is like amazing graphics wise but the consequence of that is you can't see shit half the time <laughs> you know there's no distinction and i i get that that gives you a level of realism but i love that you have these sort of very distinct shapes and things as you're going around and you know the multiplayer of this is very you know, reminiscent of what I like you know and I like that you can see what an enemy is you can see what you're supposed to be doing and at all times and the lighting again along with the, the you know the explosions and stuff is just superb it really just sort of highlights everything properly and you don't just you're not peering into the distance going who the fuck shot me you know like that like and because you didn't have as high quality a fucking monitor as someone else. You know, it's not like that. I think that one of the things that has got lost and maybe because um, first person shooters don't need it as much because they rely on different things now in terms of structure. But it's just lovely to see smaller games doing that sort of thing perfectly and really really understanding what they're going for and yeah this is just generally a absolute treat and yeah i totally agree we had to bring it up this month because in some way shape or form we had to talk about it i don't think it's like a whole episode worthy in terms of trying to talk about because there isn't really much to it beyond that it is very much like grab your gun let's go smashing the shit out things (laughs) and great that's all it has to be you know, this is a game that has been in early access and refined its time and became the game it is. And it's got the whole create your own levels thing that, again, feels like a real throwback to old school shooters. So you have this grab bag of maps and things and ideas that are from different users that really does just bring me back to Unreal Tournament back in the day where the maps were so fucking random because <laughs> it's just like, and while they didn't always work, they're always memorable. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think it's got to be commended on so many levels and it, so many games this month. I'm going to praise to the hilt, but this, you know, it's great to bring this back to sort of, to uh, have here because yeah, this is probably the best first person shooter I've played since dusk without a doubt absolutely yeah it just so fundamentally at every level understands and you know referring to it as a boomer shooter affectionately so it is taking that but it's giving us probably the most pristine version as you said that we've gotten since Mm. dusk where it doesn't feel like it's kind just trying to capitalize on a trend or it's like well you know these are pretty hot let's make one of those (laughs) that has a ripping score and that you know ratchets up the intensity but it's from every fundamental level to the degree that, you know, the collectibles or returning to environments and environments being multi-tiered for depending on, you know, where a player is in their current run, the types of enemies and these things, it just feels like not only just a return to, again, that sort of classic first-person shooter formula or experience, but it feels like it's a natural growth from that um, in a way that is just incredibly rewarding. And even if it's the type of thing that, you know, could we talk about it for an entire episode? Probably not. At the same time, though, it is something that uh, is mm. well worth people's time. And, you know, even if people maybe have bounced off of some boomer shooters in the past or something like that, I think that this one definitely justifies uh, existing in that category in a way that is pretty stellar. Um, but yeah, 
Proteus, well worth checking out for uh, first-person shooter fans and whatnot. But uh, I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into Ghostbusters Unleashed, Saturnalia, Signalis, and Scorn. And wow, that was a uh, tongue twister (laughs) of S's right there. But uh, when we come back, we'll be chatting about those titles. And we are back from our break, and we're going to dive right into Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed, which was developed and published by Ilphonic. Uh, And this is yet another asymmetrical horror multiplayer title that is going to pit 4v1 players, uh, Ghostbusters versus a pesky ghost. And this was the one game this month that I uh, unfortunately didn't get a chance to play. But Neil, you spent a good amount of time with this. So... How did Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed do? Did this a proper use of the IP for that specific uh, genre of multiplayer titles? Well, I think it's very good use of the license. I, I think um, of the ones that really make sense in terms of using this uh, 4v1 thing, Ghostbusters makes sense. Yeah, yeah, ghost, for Ghostbusters against a ghost in an environment, how is that not that kind of game? Uh, you know, it goes beyond that, thankfully. It isn't just about, oh, well, it, it fits the model. It's the fact that it also works as this sort of, um, continuation and celebration of Ghostbusters. You know, it is effectively a sequel to Afterlife, the film, um, in terms of it takes place after that, where, spoilers, you know, Winston has, uh, bought the old building and they're starting up the Ghostbusting business again. And you are one of the new Ghostbusters, uh, in a group and you basically join other Ghostbusters online to, or, or bots, you know, which is a very big thing to add here, you know, I must say, because you know, one of the big things that uh, these games lean on is uh, if you don't have a player base all the time, you're going to have to have something to, you know, fall back on. And that is something you can fall back on. Um, so Ilphonic have quite the history, you know, with this, sort of genre of game they uh helped make friday the 13th the game and uh they made predator hunting grounds as well this is their most refined effort without a doubt you know that it's not to say there's no quality in the other games i i really have a fondness for friday the 13th the game um and i think many do but um this is very you know this does seem to learn a lot of the lessons that have come from you know making those games and it's the most family friendly version of this you know that you can get you know it's not no one dies there's no blood and gore it's all about slime that very much it's weird to say ghostbusters is a family franchise when you consider, <laughs> you, if you ever watch the first film and go really right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like it. but um you know not the scare content but just in general uh Saturday Night Live uh, level of comedy comedy that um, goes on. But uh, yeah, this really does love to tap into the Ghostbusters vibe. You've got the music jauntily playing. You've got Dan Aykroyd or Dan Aykroyd sound like, you know, in there and that um, you can go to his shop and you've got a hub world that is basically the station, you know, like I said, and his uh, place, you know, Ray's place is next door in the alleyway. And you can slide down the fire pole, which is obviously very important. I'm sure everyone wanted to know that, you know, little touches like, you know, the, the dancing toaster on the pool table is there and you can go down to the, uh, the, the room where you put the traps and, but the gameplay. Now it's as you expect. It's like 
seek out the ghost for Pika meters, stop the ghost from really messing shit up, and weaken it to a point where you can trap it. Now, you can trap it normally, but unless you close these particular portals in the level that you have to find, they're hidden generally, and the ghost gets to choose where they are hidden most of the time. Um, yeah, you, you can't, the, the ghost can come back, you know, every one of those. Um, so yeah, that's the contest. It's like you trapping the ghost or you being the ghost and causing enough chaos to, you know, basically run the Ghostbusters out of town and, you know, and win the game. And it's a fun dynamic, I think. You know, you know, as a ghost, great. You do, you know, you get to hide in objects very prop hunt-esque and, you know, um, cause mischief, scare the sort of NPC characters that are around the world. You know, as Ghostbusters, you can go and reassure those characters to sort of calm them and make them not leave the map, you know, if they're really getting silly. And whatever happens, you know, you get to the end game of it all and... If the ghost is has effectively won, you do have this sort of last chance to catch it in a short time window where there are no consequences and stuff like that. I think that works quite well as a dynamic. Um, yeah, you, beyond that, you get to customize your own Ghostbuster. You get to, you know, collect things. You get to collect fungus molds and spores. You, you know, around the level and do a little teamy things it just feels very heartily like a nice ghostbusters type game you know it really does just do that job nicely the downside of it is i don't see what else you can do beyond that it just feels like that's it that that is all it can ever be and you know that's not hurt dead by daylight you know but in a market where there are so many of these kind of games you really have to do something special and they've got the time. And I think it's kind of sort of flown over the, under the radar this month. You know, I thought it would actually be a bigger deal, if anything. Um, especially given that it is more family friendly. But, um, yeah, it's really competent in, in the best, you know, that sounds condescending, but it really does do the job it sets out to the most efficiently. Out of all the ones that have done it, I think it really does it with the most quality yeah you know, i just think there are aspects of it that don't quite grab you in the same mm. way yeah i mean it's such an oversaturated corner of horror games that to say that it's competently made is not you know is not kind of saying it with the uh, tongue in cheek right i think that it is something that is makes a title such as this probably a standout right within that mm. but uh i guess you know playing as the ghost does the ghost have any sort of cool fun abilities that it can use does it feel like playing as the antagonist is a standout maybe from other sort of 4v1 style asymmetrical games yeah i think you feel like you're more in control as a ghost than you do in say other games of this type where you you feel like you're chasing all the time here you are being chased so it's a sort of inverse um so like i said you can inhabit objects and possess them you can haunt some stuff so they comes alive near people and freaks them out. You can, depending on the ghost you are, you have different abilities that can sort of get you out of a jam. Um, you know, you don't, if they get you towards the trap, you can sort of button tap your way out and stuff like that. And it is fun. It's very casual, sort of fun. And 
less stressful than being the Ghostbusters, I have to say. It's like, uh, you do feel like you've got the one up, but then, like I said, that sort of great equalizer is that you can do well and then get caught out in the last bit as a ghost. So, you know, I think that balance is quite well done. You know, and again, but yeah, there's no doubt that a ghost is more fun to play if it's just you and you haven't got anyone else to play with. But I think if you can team up with fellow Ghostbusters loving people, as a team of Ghostbusters, it's really cool. Especially as you have you know, your own personal Ghostbusters with all these little different changes. And, you know, the look of it is very cartoonish as well. So it's very real Ghostbusters in a lot of ways. And I'm like, yeah, that works for it. I think that's the best way to go. So, yeah, it's a nice little continuation. There's a little story to it as well as you go along, which is unusual for this sort of thing. It's, Okay, does the job, you know, there's some cool stuff, but, um, yeah, it sort of feels like it's there as an extra rather than, you know, it's hard to sort of make it thread through what you're doing, which is like, I'll complete a few of these matches, next bit of the story comes up, sort of thing, which is okay, doesn't really impact the gameplay so much. So, yeah, but yeah, there's, it's got plenty to it. It's one of those where I think you get your money's worth out of it. And you could leave it alone and not come back to it for till what next October as like a game and, and have a good time again. And I like that about it, uh, you know, as it stands. I think it's a game you can just come back to and go, yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Nice. Well, you know, I think that considering that, as I said, that's such an oversaturated corner of horror gaming, it's nice to hear that there's something that maybe is not as hardcore focused, which if anything might detract it from growing mm-hmm. a fan base. So the fact that it is a little more casual, a little more friendly, family friendly um, could actually work in its favor. But who knows? We'll see uh, sort of what the uh, lifespan of that is or maybe the development path that that game takes or content path that that takes over the uh, next few months. But uh, mm. hot off of the uh, release docket is our next game, <laughs> uh, Saturnalia, which is a survival horror game f- developed and published by Santa Ragione. Uh, I apologize in advance. Yeah, probably Ragione, I'd imagine. It's, there we it's go. Ta- they're from Milan, so I'd imagine it's a very Italian, I, which you can very much tell in this game. <laughs> Jotting down the note, have Neil introduce uh, games <laughs> such as this in the future. But uh, <laughs> this is the game that puts the player in the control of a cast of characters that are exploring an isolated village uh, in the labyrinth that runs beneath it. Uh, while they're trying to uncover the mystery of it all and discover what is patrolling the streets at night. Mm. Uh, this was a game that I think from the opening moments is a standout just in the way that it looks visually. Oh. It is this blending, I would describe it best as like cell shaded, but also kind of paper mache, but at the same time, almost like charcoal-esque kind of. Yeah, it's uh, um, stop motion meets rotoscoping with a sketchbook sort of overlay i put it as which yeah it it has that sort of thing um which is a a really impressive thing once you get used to it but yeah initially it's a very difficult thing to sort of look at i think um in much the same way that you know i when i was reviewing it for playstation universe i said this that you know it's like it reminds me of when you first watch spider-man into the spider-verse and it kind of looks weird to you because you're like, oh, okay, so does this, why does it feel slow and treacly and juddery? And it's like, but then before you know it, you're into the vibe of it. No, this works. This fits. And it really does fit 
once you get past that point. But yeah, I, I can totally see how you could get half an hour into this game and go, no, this isn't for me. I, I can't look at this sort of thing because it, it takes time. And then you combine that with the sort of giallo sort of things it takes on, you know, especially the color scheme, which is just, mm. you know, just bright pastel pinks and yellow and off. It's just in motion. You know, there's a game it, I was thinking of while playing it that, that ne- did really didn't get anywhere close to, to this, but put on the same aesthetic was Escape Dead Island, which was like a Dead Island spinoff mm. in third person where it was cell shaded and it was shit. But it was, <laughs> but this is like the great version of that, you know, that visual style where it really does just combine all those cool things and everything feels, I mean, though we haven't covered on here, you know, it's a game we've discussed often in the background it is the game, you know, Mundon, you know, which yes. was literally like yep. hand drawn sketchy, you know, there's a bit of that here as well. And, you know, I love a really good distinct visual style and it really is just I think the scratchiness of it all um, just creates this unsettling atmosphere you know something that leaves you on edge constantly you know I think beyond what's actually in the game I think it just like a good giallo does the visual presentation makes you go oof yeah okay there's there's something going on here where I'm I'm enchanted by it but also repulsed you know and I, I really could not get enough of that well it makes for an experience that is really uncomfortable even in the more mundane opening of the game right Mm. where you're kind of just wandering around this strange city as soon as you commit like make eye contact with somebody they run the opposite direction so even though you know something overtly terrifying isn't happening at the same time there is that sense of something going on behind the scenes that is you know more is uh more than just like an awkwardness of being a stranger in a strange land and mundon is the vibe that i had with the first you know 2 hours of this that i played and yeah. i would say that this game is a really great representation of something that you talk about a lot in the show which is like the euro horror vibes right and i think that mm. not only just the fact that the game looks a certain way but the way that it plays with colors especially at night right when you're wandering those streets oh, and early yeah. on in the game you find a letter that basically says like you shouldn't or i think it's a phone call you shouldn't be out on the streets at night and the person just hangs up and you're like well you, this is a game i'm definitely <laughs> going to be wandering these streets and it, the fact that the game you know, the perception of the town changes also at night where you just see this kind of mysterious fog, but it's not just that it's a fog that obscures your view, but it is, you know, the rest of the world is shrouded in shadows. And then there's this bright purple, these light pinks that are the fog itself. And it just, it gives it that very dreamlike sort of aesthetic that, you know, I associate sometimes with uh, like Argento films or something like yeah. that, um, which I found to make the town itself even more intriguing. And again, those sort of Mundon vibes of you being the stranger in a strange land. And there's, there's a lot of clues to danger, but you know, for a certain period of the game, there isn't this overt danger that is, you know, in your face, which I'm always appreciative of. But I will say once the game does take that route, um, it does introduce the player to the fact that, you know, not only is there a threat patrolling these streets, but the player is going to be controlling a cast of characters. And sometimes I find that when you're jumping around between characters in the same story, that the story itself is actually being done a disservice at times because it's kind of like, well, okay, so we've got these separate stories and how do these connect? But in this, in the short amount of time I spent with it, 
each of these characters have a different backstory, but it all relates to the town, which I find to be the smartest direction. It's not just that, you know, oh, we both happen to be here, but people have an investment in this place and the mysteries in which it's holding. Um, I also found just in terms of the way that the town itself is constructed and the fact that every time a character dies, or I believe when all the characters die, the layout of the town changes, um, which not only, you know, fundamentally plays into the mystery of trying to memorize the environments or trying to find shortcuts to escape whatever may be patrolling the streets, but it adds to that dreamlike sense of, okay, this is a town that does not actually operate within the normal confines of reality, which, you know, I think goes really, really well with that aesthetic from not only a gameplay standpoint, but also a story standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's what I was talking about with uh, the Withering Rooms, you know, earlier, where I was saying there was another game that did the same things. This is that game. And it, it's because here it just ties into the story so well. You know, it really does just feel like part of it. And, you know, from a gameplay point, it's like there's this inherent danger in any run, you know, any of our present fear that you know, you're being pushed into taking care and planning for the route ahead whilst also having an urgency because, you know, you have to sort of push on, you have to make progress to to affect any permanent change on this ever-changing landscape. You have to push forward or you're just going to be constantly stuck in this endless loop of nonsense where you can't go anywhere or do anything without it being different. And so while, you know, you get to come back and all that and it does just give you this realization that when you've made the wrong call, you know, very quickly, um, even before you're dead, you know, it's like, you know, that you are often given these situations where it's like, I'll decide to do this. I'll use my matches here to like this and like that. And it turns out to be not the right place to do it necessarily. And I like that. There's a real ambiguity to what, you know, Saturnalia puts out that, I really enjoy. Um, it, it doesn't you know, hold you by the hand at all, really. It, it does. It just says, "No, you figure it out." You know, like, you you get there. And you know what you said about you know the characters and how they uh, impact the story. It is important to make sure they do all have an impact here. You know, they all connect like that. And having that sort of this, you know, the the place you're in, the, this Sardinian town to have it be the focal point of everything from the story to the characters, you know, and the folklore behind it really does just sort of lift everything up because suddenly it's this greater, deeper conspiracy almost, you know, it, you know, while very different, um, it reminds me of the game, the town of light, um, which is by the developer who then went on to make Martha is dead. And, where the, that has such an interesting real life history behind it. You know, again, Italian history where, you know, it was about this you know, asylum, you know, um, you know, someone I worked with, you know, went on the press tour for that game, you know, and got to go to the real life asylum you know, that the game was based on, you know, and heard all the stories about it. And like, it just makes it really enriching to hear that, you know, and this takes a lot from, you know, Italian folklore and, you know, and it, that was the thing that really pushed me forward for all of this, you know, through the occasional frustrations and 
that well, I just wanted to know more and know all about it. And this is where I felt different to say the withering rooms where it didn't feel so connected. Yeah. Um, here it felt like such an important point of the game to have this sort of roguelike nature, uh, where you just end up getting little tidbits every time you play, you know, sure you don't make as much progress every time if you fuck up here and there, but you do learn something and it's vital. Not maybe in a progress in a progress sense, but in a, in a learning sense, you know, you get to enrich yourself in more of this. And I think there's such a respect for you know the, the source of what they're doing. You know, being an Italian studio, they are really into what they're doing, and they've got this very unique perspective as a result. You know, and because you know a lot of the cinema that it's um, evoking came from Italy, you know, or was filmed in Italy, you know, at the time, it's perfect as a match for that sort of giallo sort of style, you know, um, so I was, you know, it, it's a game that I really was quick to fall in love with in terms of its aesthetic, but I think really it was down to the folklore stuff, you know, again, as with Wuthering Rooms, the characters I didn't care that much about, maybe as you get get down the line of it, but I think the the story itself and where it was going with the folklore really just sort of was the key point for me. It really did just make this a really thrilling thrilling experience. Yeah, the last thing I'll just say about you know the lack of hand holding nature of the game is that. This game has a robust, and I think that that's almost, you know, underselling it, a uh, mm. clue system where every single thing that you interact with, you know, it goes to this menu basically that breaks down all of the different story points, every single yeah. item that you interact with, even if at the time of discovering it, it doesn't necessarily make sense by analyzing that ever updating list of clues and these things, it does begin to paint this bigger picture of how all of these things are paint are connected to one another. And even if it is the thing where if you hit a wall where you're kind of like, I don't really know where I was supposed to go for this, um, by analyzing that information, it might lead you down a path that then, in fact, you know, leads to where you are supposed to go in a specific moment. Mm. And I think for that, it does, again, you know, coming back to that sort of dreamlike nature of the world and, you know, the story of it all, um, that system and being a little free flowing while still providing enough information that, if the player, you know, is uh, keen enough to be scouring that information and returning <laughs> to that, uh, will inevitably push them in the right direction. But yeah, that was a, a last minute addition for me this month, but it was definitely one that I think was notable uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, yeah, very fantastic game, and it deserves uh, deserves plenty of hands and eyes on it. Absolutely, yeah. But another game that is evoking uh, some survival horror <laughs> elements uh, in more ways than one is our next title, which is Signalis, which was from developer Rose Engine and published by Humble Bundle. Uh, and we played this demo. I believe it was, you know, the months are all coming together, are all merging yeah. together the closer we get to the end of the year. I believe it was last month or the month before that uh, for... Yeah something or other we covered, but um, this is a, you know, a love letter, I would say, to survival horror classics in that, you know, it delivers this pristine top-down framework and you're investigating this underground government facility 
that is filled with uh, various horrors and whatnot. And it's tied up in this really fantastic dystopian future sort of nightmare um, and uncovering mm. this, you know, this reality of the sense of ownership of dreams and ownership of consciousness, because of course, you know, it being a future setting there of, of course, replicas and androids and discovering the mystery behind all of that and you know the horrors of this facility was something that uh was really really engaging just from that brief demo that we played you know a, mm. a brief while back and to finally get down to sit with the full experience and to see it be fleshed out in a way that you would hope a final product would after playing the demo and even some slight changes from that opening you know whatever it was 10 minutes um you know most notably the demo that we covered it introduced combat really early on. And that mm. was one thing that I was appreciative of when I actually sat down and played the game. It waits to introduce combat, which I think yeah. does a good job of like putting the player into the world and understanding the fundamentals of, you know, exploration of puzzle solving of how the inventory system and map system work. Um, and while combat of course becomes a big focus, the further into this game you get is, is the nature of a lot of survival horror games or all most survival horror games. Um, it's a game that I think first and foremost has a story to tell and it really is a fantastic example of being um, a homage to the genre or the subgenre of survival horror games. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily go out of its way to like try to rewrite that playbook, if you will. I think it does a really great job of taking a lot of fundamentals of various survival horror games and blending it into one while also, you know, having this psychological story backdrop to it all that, uh, I think it makes for a really, really engaging and standout survival horror title in a month that, you know, as we've said, is filled with a lot of really, really notable horror titles. And this one is certainly near the top of the list for me. How did uh, Signalis do for you? Yeah, well, you know, I reviewed this you know, as well. Um, and you know, I gave this a, a very hearty 9 out of 10 when, uh, on PlayStation Universe. And yeah, that's not no mean feat for what it's doing because as you say it is very much a throwback to classic survival horror now as we've discussed previously doing that right takes you know a lot you know to really get the idea of how do you make old survival horror modern and i don't even yeah the big remakes we talk about that are coming you know or have been uh, you know, Resident Evil 2 remake, you know, the Silent Hill 2 remake, the Dead Space remake. You know, Dead Space is closer to what it was anyway, so it's not really, it's not going to be too much different. But, um, they don't quite feel like they did, you know, generally, that there's something about them that doesn't quite capture the vibe and the griminess and the, the discombobulating nature of those games when you first play them. Um, and the thing about this is it just really gets it you know, in so many ways, you know, it understands what it is. You know, you can see, you know, the points where it references uh, the classics, you know, it's like burning the bodies out of Resident Evil remake or, you know, like, or, there's a bit of fear effect in there, you know, which you know, a lesser known, very, you know, horny sort of uh, <laughs> game. But, um, but yeah, there's stuff in there that really just 
takes you back, you know, in a way. I, I said this with Proteus as well when I reviewed that, where it's like the, the only crime this game commits is that it doesn't literally take me back 20, 25 years. And there's something special about it. I mean, it isn't even like it takes the traditional viewpoint of those old school survival horrors. You know, there's no, there's a fixed camera to a degree. You know, you don't have, you do not have control over the camera, but it's more of an isometric viewpoint. But it's really cleverly restrictive in what it does and doesn't show you. It doesn't pan up just yeah, earlier. Like a lot of games would just, uh, for you know, ease of use, pan up or pan to the side earlier by the time you, when you're moving in a certain direction. And this just sort of leaves it a little bit longer just to give you that seed of doubt about what's coming. And that really evokes that classic survival horror thing of fixed cameras where you hear the noise, but you can't see the thing whilst in an environment that that shouldn't work in, you know, and it really does it so well. You know, the fact that it can communicate this sort of dread terror as a game anyway, without relying on clarity of image is you know, a testament to what the game does so well. You know, it, the, the visual design of this game is just superb. You know, it's very simple in the way that those old games were very simple. But they translate the fear to you because they're showing you something that doesn't look right, you know, and they're really making it feel that way. And you're getting that feedback. And now that doesn't work for a lot of games in a way because, of course, it wouldn't details higher blah 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 i think having too much detail we i was talking about this earlier with proteus is you know a problem because too much detail kind of takes some of the fear factor out of it in a sort of a horror game it's like sure everything's more gory and more realistic and you can see the fucking veins and eyes popping out on william birkin in resident evil 2 remake but it doesn't feel as intimidating yeah, yeah. There's no mystery. It's just yeah. like a horror film, right? It's like when they show too much of the monster early on, all of that tension and terror evaporates because you've shown too mm. much. And, you know, that's a level of restraint that I would say often games don't have, right? And because yeah. of that visual fidelity, especially thinking about, you know, you mentioned the Dead Space remake, it's the type of thing. Sure, it's shrouded in darkness a majority of the time, but if you're going to focus on a Xeno, on a, um, what are they called? I can't remember. I was called a xenomorph. Uh, <laughs> necromorphs. Necromorph. There we go. See, I wasn't too far <laughs> off. There was a morph in there. Uh, yeah. But the necromorphs themselves, you know, if you're going to shine a flashlight on it, you're going to be able to see all of it in this intricate detail. And that's not to, you know, go down a rabbit hole and say that Dead Space isn't scary, but it's this type of thing where, you know, with a game such as Signalis, I have a general idea of what the monsters in this look like. But due to the nature of them not being this level of visual fidelity or, you know, building them up to the point that you can see every detail, they're monstrous in a way that is terrifying because I can't perfectly decipher why or how it looks. And I think that that is an element of fear that, again, it has a level of restraint that you don't have to see everything or you don't have to fully understand what you're seeing, um, which maybe is evoking, you know, more old school horror, if you will. Yeah. And I think... It really just helps that um, when you factor in the plot references to why they are, what they are in the early ones, it adds a sort of a sense of menace that uh, has been missing from the zombification of enemies. You know, 
like um you know you and the people you are meeting are basically not human in most cases and some that should really take out the danger and the intimidation of this you know it's like well if you're not human what does it matter but i think other games have proved this frictional games have done this you know in the past where um it's not about the humanity inherent it's about what you draw out what humanity you draw out from the situation and here it's like the cursed nature of like well you know things are getting fucked up yeah and like um and the fact they reanimate and until you burn them is only because of programming rather than just like some sort of virus where like in a traditional sense is so logical within the game world as well but also terrifying and yeah it, it just really t- everything ties in so well you know with this story that they're telling you know, this sort of you know retro tech future that they've got going on which is you know, we're always going to be a sucker for that sort of thing because you know that's that's alien for you you know that, that's this, this idea of it's the future but everything looks like it was made in 1975 it's like and that's great that's what you want because it feels futuristic and dated in, in a way that feels unnerving i suppose and yeah it, it really sort of but there's a satisfying nature to it. There's one element of this that I want to highlight quickly before we move on to our final title for the month is the fact that in a lot of the flashbacks or, or cutscenes of this game, um, you know, the cutscenes themselves are in this traditional sort of uh, animated style. But there are these moments that are the flashbacks that put the player into dreams or memories that may or may not be their own. Um, And not only the psychological nature of those, but the fact that the game cuts from that top-down isometric viewpoint into first person. And, you know, it's a slight perspective change, but at the same time, I think that it does a great job of, you know, putting the player in the shoes of an experience that either may or may not be their own. Um, And I think that that is just a smart utilization of changing perspective to have a narrative focus or apply a greater significance to a moment than it just being a cutscene or something along those lines. The game also does that whenever you interact with certain areas where there's a puzzle or something like that. So if you come to a computer or a specific puzzle terminal or something, it goes into that first person mode. Um, and it's a little detail, but it's a detail that I can appreciate. Again, talking about this being a homage that doesn't rewrite survival horror games, but it does take a great deal of elements from a great deal of very solid survival horror titles um, and blends it into one. And it still has this unique backdrop and production value. And uh, I'll say also, you know, the intro to this game, once you get through the tutorial and you have sort of the descent, if you will, into this uh, facility is, you know, it feels cinematic, which is the way that we describe a lot of these uh, sort of moments. <laughs> but it is really, really a fantastic blending of this vague psychological story, shocking visuals, and a really, really terrific score that, uh, you know, it feels like it's ripped straight out of a movie or something. And uh, yeah, yeah, this is one that definitely anybody that has even an inkling of interest in survival horror i would uh i would recommend checking out yeah and you know i, I said this when i reviewed it it's like uh, i said don't say it lightly you know you know as a horror fan i grew because of resident evil and, and those early years uh, so when i say that this is a big deal 
that I consider the impact this game can have is almost right, you know, is up there with the effect those those games had decades ago. Is no mean mean feat, you know. I I'm not saying that lightly. I've played so many games that have done this stuff over the years or tried to do this stuff, including the likes of Dead Space, you know, that, that didn't quite get it. But this just feels right. You know, it feels like the perfect middle ground between what uh, psychological horror of Silent Hill does. You know, it's no surprise that they reference Anna, you know, uh, the Neon Genesis Evangelion guy has done uh, sort of stuff because it has that sort of bleakness to it. You know, this future bleakness that works so well. And... Yeah, it, it's just remarkable in in so many ways. And I went into it thinking, "Oh, this is quite fun. This is quite good. This this really does." In the same way, I've done many many games that have tried to sort of evoke classic survival horror over the years. But because this does things in its own way, whilst evoking those classic feeling feelings, you know, evoking classic feelings in a way that isn't just straight up copying them. It's like taking its own perspective, taking its own story beats, and really, you know, taking cliche ideas like, oh, it's all about identity and who am I sort of things, and really making it work as its own thing. <sighs> you know, it deserves so much. You know, it is a fantastic game. You, you simply must check it out. I mean, it's on Game Pass, so you know, if you're out there and you want to check it out, that is you know, the optimum place to give it a go yeah absolutely been very well said uh but we're going to dive into our final title for the month which is one that has you know been in the pipe if you will for a very long time and we've finally gotten our hands on it that being scorn from developer ebb software developed by kepler interactive and well worth noting that uh i received a code for this game from the developer ahead of its release um and yeah this game has been in development since 2014 that's when it was, you know, teased to players and it's been, uh, you know, languishing in developer hell, if you will, for a great long while. But we finally got our hands on it. And Scorn is very much this hellish Geiger world um, that is a blending of, you know, brutalist horror with puzzle mechanics and whatnot. And while some people were under the illusion uh, that it was a more straightforward survival horror with heavy emphasis on combat, which, you know, Maybe there was a, a little miscommunication in the marketing of this from an early standpoint or close to the release, but this is a game that is a heavy emphasis on, you know, this kind of vague world exploring, but very much centered around puzzle solving uh, and puzzles notably that are uh, very unique to this specific world. This is a world that, uh, as I said, is uh, clearly a nod to the likes of the artwork of H.R. Geiger, who, of course, is uh, famed as being the artist for or concept artist for the original film Alien. Um, and it, it's a world that really does take that influence. And it isn't just sort of like a throwaway marketing point. Like for me, this is a game that really does take that influence and gives you this really stellar version of being able to walk through such a world. Um, you know, we'll, we'll chat a little bit about maybe, uh, the gameplay elements of it, but from a world standpoint and just, you know, almost taking a page out of sort of just the praise I would give to 
a something like a walking simulator, right? Where you get to just be in this space that is so wholly unique. And while in this game, there is a lot less, you know, lore or uh, even handholding, right? There's barely a tutorial for this type of game. It is something that kind of drops you in this foreign world. And for me, I was pretty mesmerized with that and just getting to see the weird biomechanical natures of how things work. Everything is bone and very fleshy, uh, if you will. Um, and I'm curious, Neil, for you, you know, how is this blending of, you know, this hostile just from a visual standpoint, but then blending it with this uh, heavy puzzle emphasis? So, yeah, I had no problem with the idea of it being a puzzle game at all. I think that absolutely works as an idea for what they're doing. And just, it, as a shooter, it wouldn't have worked because I think Geiger's work, Geiger's work was never really like that to me personally. It was all, all about atmosphere and mood. Um, so what this game really does well is make that a consistent part of everything. You know, and as you were saying, you know, it, it's part of the puzzles. It's part of the interaction with everything. You are fully immersed in this sort of Geiger nightmare, you know, and that's brilliant. I love that about it. I think that's the best thing it does is that it really just nails that sort of otherworldly alien, properly alien feel. You know, it's like when we talk about alien as a film, yeah, you know, the biggest takeaway of it is the design of that alien because without it, it's just another film. Yeah, you know, I, I think it. You know, as much as Ridley Scott has done so much great work in that film, I don't think it would be as fondly remembered if it wasn't for that iconic alien design that Geiger made because it just represents so much. You know, and it is just so alien. Literally, you know, it, it feels like something different. It's not like, it's not the little grey man. It's not humanoid in the same way. It, it feels insectile and it's just nightmarish. And I, you know, I think those aspects of that, whenever it comes back into that franchise, are always the best bits because they feel odd and ill-fitting to what you would consider the comfortable sort of sci-fi epic horror sort of feeling and you know this is a game that just doesn't give a shit about doing anything but that you know it's just about you know no no we're all about body horror fucking full-on it's not just geiger but you know cronenberg style fucking body horror that's it and you do all that so yeah on that level i think it does an absolutely remarkable job of um really capturing what geiger really wanted yeah, I think, uh, you know, it helps that I just came off the heels of watching, uh, uh, Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future right before I dove into this, which has a very, you know, there's definitely some connectivity, uh, tissue there, right? I think between those worlds and that style of, you know, this blending of the biomechanics and everything like that, um, that this game has in the sense that everything that you interact with, uh, and I apologize in advance for this kind of uh, a pornographic description, perhaps, but you know <laughs> there is a big emphasis on this pl- the character that the player is playing as you know sticking their limbs into these you know holes, these fleshy sort of amalgamations, uh, and they are uh, accompanied 
appropriately so by uh, these like very moist and kind of sloppy sound effects where mm. you're sticking your fingers in these things and then kind of moving this bone around in a way that is uh, uncomfortable, but feels right at home with that world. Right. <laughs> um, I think that in that sense, it was really refreshing to see puzzles that are, and you know, like you said, I'm not opposed, I'm not a huge puzzle game guy, but at the same time, it became very apparent very quickly that this is a game that is best suited with the direction they took and that this is puzzle focused. The snippets of combat that you get for me personally, I didn't think would have been able to sustain as long of an experience as this was. Not to say this is a terribly long game, but if anything, that kind of informs you about, you know, maybe the fleshing out of combat or just the way in which this world doesn't feel designed with combat in mind, which at the end of the day, I found to be one of its strengths in that primarily the puzzles feel as if they're designed with this world in mind rather than designing a unique world and ha- then having ill-fitting puzzles within them. Um, I'm not going to say that all of the puzzles are the best puzzles I've ever played. They're Not to say that they're, you know, designed like they're going to put your brain in a pretzel or anything like that at all times, but I am thrilled that they are, you know, evoking the brutal mentality of this world, right? One of the earliest puzzles is you need to get this item and you basically have to, like, birth something just to destroy it with a massive buzzsaw. Um, And I think that there's plenty of examples in this game like that, uh, where it just feels like puzzles that are not even puzzles in the sense of like the world itself. It's just, this is how things are done in this world. Uh, It's very unforgiving and uh, very finite, I suppose, in the fate of some of the creatures in this world. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I don't know. I guess I hope that people don't go into this expecting a narrative or even lore, right? This is very much a sort of this vague experience of you just kind of soaking up the world and the visual style of it all, much like I would say it almost kind of evokes the feeling I have about a lot of like eighties, uh, maybe like heavy metal art in that there's this really fantastical world, but you're never going to learn the intricacies of it. And if anything, it's probably best suited for that. I think, uh, in terms of just getting to walk around in that world is more rewarding than any kind of backstory that could come up for it realistically. Um, but yeah, this was a game that I'd been looking forward to for a really long time. I understand some people are disappointed that this is not really a survival horror game uh, outside of maybe a few moments of it, but as a game that, you know, really does create this foreboding atmosphere has a really, you know, engrossing world just because I can't wait to see the next kind of like, gross sloppy uh thing to interact with um but just from that standpoint you know i enjoyed scorn and um just finally getting to also play it it was nice to see something that's been in development as long as this have come to fruition in a way and not be some kind of horrifically buggy mess or something along those lines (laughs) which you know has not been my experience uh thankfully with the game but yeah yeah so yeah i will finish this segment just saying that you know i have played a lot of games this month uh, horror or otherwise and scorn was always like top of the list of things to play this month i was like i was so excited to play it because of that sort of geiger aesthetic and when people were talking about how you know how it was very much very puzzle orientated and very methodical i was like okay yeah I'm, i'm into that you know you know what a puzzle game has done right uh, in first person, it's exquisite. Portal Two is the perfect example of that. You know, um, I didn't like it as a game. 
Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I have to say this because yeah, so as much as I, I really respect the aesthetic and the, the commitment to the bit, you know, the, of like being this world that yeah has its own rules and it already feels right and it all fits together really well. And I really, really do respect that uh, for what it does. But as a game, I, I've just felt frustrated by it constantly. I, I just, it didn't, it's not about the puzzles being hard because I could do them. It just, they felt laborious. You know, they, they felt like this long winded thing. And you know, for the people that were wishing it was more combat oriented, no, you don't because that stuff is the worst part of the game without a shadow of a doubt. And I, I wish that it wasn't there at all because that at least then that's the bit that betrays the idea for me. You know, it's like, I like what it was doing. Yeah, in some ways, I may not agree with the way they went about it, but you know, if you're going to commit to a bit, just do that. Yeah, and um, but yeah, when it went for combat, no, no, thank you. Um, I suppose it's just expectation with this for me. Um, it's a long time coming. I really wanted it to be good. Uh, I really wanted to enjoy it, and you know, on a level, I can, but. It's like when you get introduced to an art film, yeah? Um, and you you really want to love it because everything about it seems like it should be your thing. But then you you get into it and you're like, I, get, I, I admire what they're doing, but no, this isn't for me. It happens sometimes. And Scorn's... The, the example of that. And again, I said this earlier, it, it just happens to come in a month where there are plenty of games that have really scratched an itch in different ways for me that I didn't think would. So, you know, it, it's just that kind of um, game, unfortunately, that uh, it didn't do it for me, you know, generally speaking. And uh, I think having played it this once, that's it, yeah. I don't think there's anything they can change about this game that is going to engage me a second time around. But yeah, It was Doesn't definitely a game that I had to play in more sittings. I was surprised by the amount of sittings it took me to get through Scorn, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I definitely shared some of those frustrations, right? I think that, again, the puzzles themselves, well, I'm appreciative of the fact that they are representative of the world themselves. I didn't necessarily always enjoy completing them, not because they were super challenging, but just because maybe, again, some of that vagueness of the world itself was actually part of sort of Mm. the approach to the puzzles in that it was like, okay, I'm not saying I need a tutorial description on how to do things, but at the same time, the environmental tells perhaps could have been a little more clear in their design. I'll say that. Like that very first one where you've got those pods you have to shift around. That puzzle, Um, as soon as I completed that puzzle, I was like, that should have taken me a total of, I don't know, two minutes, three minutes. Just because it it was not clear just by looking at those specific ones that you're supposed to be moving, just based off of looking at it, it was like, it was not clear when you're looking at a dozen or two dozen of those types of pods right off the bat. At the same time, Again, talking about the later half of that puzzle, 
I was appreciative, though, of the fact that it's like you get to see the birth of this thing. And then, of course, anything that's birthed in this world is immediately destroyed for the benefit <laughs> of uh, the majority. But yeah, you know, Scorn is one of those games that I'm appreciative of the fact that or I'm just relieved that we finally got something that didn't end up being far messier than maybe I assumed it would be just because yeah. of, you know, that cycle uh, and how much, you know, press it was getting and, you know, how much anticipation was building to it. At the same time, I'm excited now to see what Ebb Software is able to do next because the world building aspect, as far as I'm concerned, just of making an engaging environment, I'm really interested to see what they're able to build off of that, what they've yeah. already proved. Um, you know, maybe we need to see a little more fundamentals in terms of gameplay or fleshing that out or, you know, applying a story. Um, but I think that for me, you know, and having the expectation that it was not necessarily going to be the next great horror shooter. I'm, I enjoyed my time with Scorn while not loving it. Also, yeah, uh, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's a, I think it's that kind of game that will divide opinion in many different ways. So that they are always the most interesting things to cover as a result. But you know, we've covered everything now for this month. So Jay, we we had to pick individual game of the month. So um, out of our picks this week month even um what is your game of the month yeah so for me when i was kind of getting to the end of everything at the month and just thinking about you know what was the game that took me the least amount of time to play and not based on a time constraint but more mm. so just a game that i found that i had that thing where i was like another 20 minutes another 20 minutes another 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah. you know i would say that signalis was that game um that was a game that Again, I had been really captivated with the demo, um, and I was curious to see how they were going to be able to flesh that out into a full experience. And it was really rewarding to finally get my hands on that game and to see it not just be a homage in the traditional sense of like, oh, yeah, this, you know, it plays like classic uh, Resident Evil or it's got a story similar to Silent Hill, but it feels like it's evoking those things while pushing what a homage should really be. And it mm. takes all of those influences and, you know, those elements of past and present survival horror games, and it makes it into something that feels very singular and very notable yeah. and able to stand on its own merits of being this concoction of all of these different elements, rather than just being something that's like, yeah, man, if you're looking for something that plays like classic Resi, this is the game for you. That's not how I recommend this game. That might be no. a way in which you could broach the conversation of like this being yeah. a solid survival horror game but at the same time i would never lead with the influences i would say this is a game that really does formulate its own sense of storytelling and going in that in a really wonderful way um, of blending you know psychological storytelling with sci-fi in a way that feels very original in a way that um yeah i just i couldn't stop playing this game and i love the gameplay loop of just you know, finding one item, which then reminds you of, oh, this one puzzle that was like five minutes ago, I had no fucking clue what to do with that or an access I couldn't, or an area that I couldn't access initially. Um, but yeah, Signalis has that really fantastic classical loop of gameplay while again, having enough surprises in it that make it, you know, constantly rewarding for me in a way that um, I think when we get to our end of the year discussion, this will definitely be one that uh, we will return to. Yeah, and that, that's no mean feat in a, in a month where personally I would say there were, there were four games here that, that I could easily have just picked any as being the game of the month. You know, I 
I'm not going to be contrary even and, and just pick a different one just because you picked that. But I'm going to say Signalist because, you know, it, I just think what it does with uh, a genre that has been misunderstood in so many ways when people have tried to recreate it, um, it understands it so well and takes it in new places and evokes the old at the same time. And yeah, it, it's a very, very close thought battle. I will say this between this and the Plague Tale Requiem because I just, I'm in awe of what Asobo did with that game. But I think Signalis is just considering the demo didn't, I, if, if I remember rightly, I didn't feel as keen on the demo. I think having that combat introduction early on just made that seem like, and I think we've discussed this before, demos of games these days don't tend to really communicate what the game is about in the same way because games have changed. So, but that one, yeah, they, they meaningfully put the game in a very different light, light to what it actually was. And so to get this sort of build up in the actual game to that you know, to the actual combat felt proper. You know, it felt more like the way it should be. And, you know, if I was only ever basing it on that demo, I maybe wouldn't have checked it out beyond that. You know, I, I, I think this game is very much a case of play it, just play it. And if you are a, a fan of anything survival horror over the years, this really does just capture the essence of it. It's not exactly the same, but there are things about it that work so well in that medium that you will be like, shit, you can get the same results with different approaches. And that's what we've needed. Now, it, what we're getting currently is like, oh, you want the same game that was, but different. You, know, you just want prettier graphics and to make it more like a modern game great. I don't know. We want games that just get everything that was about survival horror. And, you know, Signalis is that game without a shadow of a doubt. So, yeah, I think that's a, an undisputed game of the month. <laughs> Absolutely. And for anybody that's doubting, we did not share what our game of the month was before no. we were recording. Uh, which, so it's a nice surprise that, you know, this game clicked for both of us uh, in the same way and just it being this really remarkable, um, you know, execution on something that, again, you know, talking about and something you and I have talked about a lot off air, just in terms of, you know, the disservice that movies get these days, I think, from their trailers. And mm. not to say Signalis got was done a disservice with that demo, but, you know, it's interesting thinking about how demos have to be constructed now, because if you want people to get a sense of what your game is, you might have to include elements earlier on that aren't normally there just so that people yeah. get the idea of what the experience is going to be like. And, you know, for somebody like me, it was really, really rewarding to get to play this game and to have it be a little bit more relaxed in the earlier moments, just so that way you can be put into this world in a way that allows you to soak in that atmosphere, to soak in the mechanics, yeah. which, you know, not to say the mechanics are anything groundbreaking for survival horror games, but it just, it allows you to coexist within this world with the horrors that are awaiting you um, in a way that doesn't have to like jam gameplay down your throat from a combat standpoint. Um, it really does allow it. It feels a lot more methodical in its construction, I'll say, um, which not that the demo made me doubt that, but 
it was just nice to see something that was a little more relaxed that then, you know, as the game ratchets up in intensity, um, it has that really nice flow to it. Um, and yeah, I, that's definitely a game that we'll be revisiting uh, in the near future. And, you know, that's going to be the beauty of uh, the inventory, right? It's that anything mm. we cover here, there good chance that there's going to be a uh, longer form conversation perhaps in the future. Um, that could be, so we can't rule that out. But uh, yeah, this was definitely a, a strong first showing for the inventory like we chatted about early on. Uh, there was no shortage of games to talk about. Um, and, you know, even if we missed a few things released in October, which I'm sure that we did, uh, there's a <laughs> chance that we will uh, find a reason to chat about it again in the future. Yeah, and so, yeah, we have to obviously put the obvious call out here that if you have a game coming out in November and you want to be in next month's uh, episode of this, then, you know, please do just, uh, well, Jay will give you the details. Yep. <laughs> if you are interested in being added to that roster, uh, please reach out to us uh, via email saferoompod at gmail.com or you know if you use twitter more often than email uh you can tweet us at saferoompod and uh i will be sure to you know throw your uh, game into the running um but yeah you know as always neil it is a uh, pleasure chat and horror with you for safe room yeah until the next time thank you for listening to another episode of safe room if you enjoy the show please rate us on itunes and follow us on twitter at saferoompod for show updates you can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.